This is the Way Podcast. The militias needed to have a heads up that I was coming. I personally think they didn't, you know, like in chess. So that's how deep the addiction goes. I've been incarcerated most of my life. Having a conversation with Where they've been given no option, either join or die. Yeah, snipers, and it was a military. That film is famously visually gorgeous. If you want to know more about The Way Podcast, go to podcasttheway.com. Also on FM 91.7, WHUS stores at the top of the hour. I'm your host, Bill, and today I'm sitting down with Helen Redman. Now, she created the documentary and directed Liquid Handcuffs, a documentary to free methadone. So how are you doing today, Helen? I'm doing okay. How are you? I'm doing good. So, um, yeah, so what uh, first... What role did you play in making this documentary? <clears throat> well, basically, uh, it's 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 a two woman show. It's uh, me and my co filmmaker Marilena Marchetti, and so we did everything. We did the photography, we did the audio, we did the editing. The only thing we had to pay for was uh, mixing the sound. So basically, it, we did everything. Nice. You got the camera equipment. You bought the, I know you went to Afghanistan, Britain, India, Portugal, Russia, USA. <laughs> you uh, had to buy out those tickets too? Yes. It was completely financed out of our own pockets and uh, Chase Manhattan uh, credit cards. <laughs> you have to slowly pay them off or the documentary is doing, because when did this documentary release? We released it last year, and but it's not available yet for streaming. We're working with some streaming companies to, to get it onto one of their platforms so that people can actually go in and, uh, and stream it for hopefully a minimal, a minimal price. I understand. Uh, when do you think that's gonna happen? Cause yeah, like I wanted to see it to prepare for the show. I looked around, I couldn't find it at first, but then you sent me the link. Yeah, like when do you think the public will be able to see it? We're hoping maybe in three or four months. The streaming platforms, I mean, they get back to you when they want to. <laughs> yep. So we're kind of dependent on them to let us know that they're going to carry it on their platform. Yep. I know some like there's a different field, but Spotify, instant response, Apple. Maybe it takes a few days. Pandora, that took maybe months of mm -hmm. me saying like, hey, uh, did you forget yeah. about me? Hello? <laughs> when I was starting this up. Yeah. But so what made you want to create this documentary in the first place? I mean, methadone, I hear a little bit here and there, but what made you want to pick this topic? Well, <clears throat> I wear a couple of different hats. So I'm a filmmaker. I'm a journalist. I write for a website called Filter. Prior to that, I had been writing for a long time, well over a decade, about various aspects of the war on drugs. And it was really probably my work as a social worker, <clears throat> and I've pretty much always worked with people who use drugs, adults who, who use drugs, and a majority of them were heroin users. And so it was my job as a social worker to help them get into methadone clinics. And so doing that, I had interaction with staff in the clinic and got to understand the rules and regulations. And then coupled with what my clients would tell me, I realized how 
punitive, coercive, oppressive methadone clinics are. So it was through that work, trying to help people get into this clinic system and then them relating to me the experiences, many of them very negative, but some positive. I realized there is this clinic system that's operating essentially in plain sight. And again, there's many aspects of it that are very controlling and punitive. And I wanted to write about that and make a film about it so that it could come into the mainstream. People could see what was happening behind closed doors of methadone clinics. Okay, because yeah, I uh, found a few of your articles. So you were writing first and then that really, you took a step farther and decided to make a documentary. Uh, what were some of your pieces? I've, I've written about, well, one piece, especially since COVID, right? That's been a game changer. So I wrote a piece about the, one of the ways that you can get increased take-homes is if you meet certain criteria. So they look at people as stable patients and unstable patients. And SAMHSA, which is a substance abuse and mental health services administration, they have, they've set out a set of criteria and you have to meet this criteria in order to get 14 or 28 day take-homes. And the criteria, the bar set really high. Uh, you have to be quote unquote stable. So how do you define that? Having employment, having quote unquote uh, positive family relationships. How do you dis decide what that is? And the bar is really high and I consider unfair. So I wrote a piece about that. And so there's like no strict guideline. It's just my perception or whoever's perception of this patient. Well, the federal government, it's their criteria. And then people who work in the clinic, it could be the physician, it could be the nurse, it could be the counseling staff, they would decide. So I wrote a piece about that to just show how controlling and how monitored people are and how they're oppressed. This clinic system in so many ways oppresses them. Gotcha. First, so the audience knows what is methadone? What's the purpose of methadone? What, it, what is the drug itself? Right, methadone is a synthetic opioid and it was discovered originally in Germany in the 30s. And then when it got to the United States, there are two researchers who are really important, Marie Nicewander and Robert Dole. And then they further developed this medication and it's used to help people who are dependent on heroin. So it's a substitution for heroin and it works really, really well. It transforms people's lives. So it's a synthetic opioid. People do become dependent on it, but it's been studied now for 15 years. It's incredibly safe. The side effects are minimal and the positive effects, I think one of the most important ones to mention because we're still in an opioid overdose crisis is that it cuts de the death rate by 50%. So people who get onto methadone, their chances of dying of an overdose are decreased by 50%. And that's tremendously important because we're still tragically in the midst of an opioid related overdose crisis in this country. 50% is huge. It prevents them from overdosing on other drugs or they're just less likely to overdose on methadone. Like, can you overdose well, on methadone? 
you could overdose on methadone for sure. But what it does is for people who are taking methadone, they're no longer going to the illicit market and using heroin, which in most places, it's not even heroin anymore. It's fentanyl, right? Which is way more powerful uh, than heroin. They're not using street drugs anymore. They're on methadone. So that's why it decreases their chances of overdosing. Two, uh, three weeks ago, a distant family friend uh, wanted to take some cocaine, like in a situation. Not only wasn't it cocaine, it was heroin. And not only wasn't it heroin, it was mostly fentanyl heroin. It, exactly. It, it has infected the, the drug supply of, of so many drugs, methamphetamine as well. And so that's why the fentanyl test strips, it's very important that we get them into the hands of active drug users. Gotcha. So when, so somebody's a heroin addict or uh, they're addicted to an opioid, when they take methadone, the understanding I have is that it sort of blocks the receptor so you don't get as much uh, pleasure out of the opioid or heroin. Is that a right assumption? Is that mm-hmm. what it is? Well, for, the first thing I have to say is we don't use the word addict. That's a very pejorative word. We say drug user, people drug who user. use drugs, like people first language. Gotcha. And basically what methadone does is it just blocks the cravings uh, for opioids and people don't get high from it. Uh, it takes, it might take a couple days to, uh, or a week or two to sort of figure out the right amount of of methadone that a person needs. Every, every person's different. I might need hundred milligrams. You might need, I don't know, 150. Everybody's different. But essentially once you begin the medication, you figure out the dose that's gonna, a lot of people have told me over the years that it just makes them feel quote normal, okay. right? Every, every human being has a, a sense of like, I'm just okay. And so that's what methadone does for people. I'm, I'm okay. I feel good. And I'm not in withdrawal. That's what methadone does for people. But I, I also need to mention, I, I just, I want to put this into the, to the conversation. We don't have to talk about it a lot, but people can actually be maintained on heroin and people are in other countries. They have heroin assisted programs. So it's pharmaceutically pure heroin, or they call it hydromorphone and people can be maintained on that and just go about their life like anybody would who's on any other medication. Unfortunately, in the US, we don't have heroin assisted treatment, but in England and Germany and Switzerland, people can be maintained on that as well as methadone and buprenorphine is the other big uh, medication for people who are opioid dependent. Is that like the clean injection sites I heard of up in Canada? No, the, the safe injection sites are different than the heroin assisted treatment programs. The safe injection site is where people, one of the flaws actually with a safe injection site is people are bringing in drugs they bought on the street, right? They're bringing in poisoned drugs because our drug supply is so poisoned. Luckily they're in a, a, a facility where they're being monitored. So if they do overdose right away, people, staff can come over nurses or peer uh, workers and give the person oxygen or Narcan, and which is great. We need more of them. We need them in the US, but the problem is you're bringing in street drugs. And really what we need is a safe supply. That's the other 
uh, plug I would make on, on your show is we need to legalize and regulate all drugs so that you know the purity of them. That is one of the major ways we could end the opioid overdose crisis in this country. This is a little off topic, and I'll bring it back to documentary a sec, but I heard that there's a shot people can get when they're overdosing on a drug, and it's sort of can stop the overdose just like that, but the downside is it's very expensive, which is why a lot of places don't implement them already. Is that uh, true? I Hey, you scoop me. <laughs> I, I've never heard of this injection. That's just what I heard through the fine, so. If you find out more, let me know. Definitely. And that uh, decriminalizing and allowing anybody to take a drug, that's sort of like the Portugal approach. Is that what you kind of want? Well, what Portugal has, and we go to Portugal in the documentary, of course, they decriminalized drugs over 20 years ago. They're the first country to, to do that. But, and I don't, I don't want to dismiss decriminalization because it's worked in, in Portugal. But here's the problem with decriminalization. What decriminalization does, it says, okay, you, um, okay, they, the police catch you with some drug, right? They're not going to then, a, a cascade of criminal legal uh, things are not gonna happen to you. They're gonna offer you treatment and, and that's great. But, but the problem is what about the people who grow the drugs? the people who transport the drugs, the people, you know, that whole, there's a, a, there's a whole drug chain, right? From cultivation to then the point of sale. There's all this stuff that goes on in between that. All of those people are still gonna be pursued by the drug warriors. It's still gonna be a drug war, just not now on you who the police, you're outside and you're smoking marijuana or meth or whatever your drug of choice is. So I, that's great, but I want the whole drug chain to be legalized and decriminalization doesn't do that. It doesn't go far enough. Gotcha. Somebody I know is sort of a very far left. Well, my barber, he, uh, he's Antifa. I found out the other day and he said he doesn't want drugs to be legalized like the way you mentioned, because then he said corporations are going to start sort of making a pro like a profit hmm. sort of owning the market well i think what he's talking about is corporate capture and it's it's a reality i mean I, i'm sure you know what's happening with the legalization of cannabis right you have a group of disproportionately rich white and male investors who now want to make millions because cannabis is becoming legalized in state after state for adult use and there are problems with that to be sure. There are other models that other, other states and other countries have, have implemented that, that people should have a look at. But I think that we have to legalize drugs because the harms of legalization are much less than the harms that we've been living with under prohibition for over 50 years, right? That's why we have mass incarceration. That's why we had stop and frisk that was aimed mostly at young black and brown men. When you have legalization and regulation, you dramatically uh, change that, that situation. It's not to say that racism ends the minute you legalize cannabis. We know that's not true. For example, in Colorado, we have studies that show even though the rate of arrest for cannabis offenses have gone way down 
Well, guess who is still getting arrested? It's still disproportionately people of color. Wait, why are they getting arrested? I thought it was legalized there. Well, there are still rules. You can't smoke outside. Uh, okay, okay. Right? Stuff and, like that. Those and, little gotchas and, they hate them with. Right. Yeah. So there are still rules, which there need to be rules once you legalize any drug. I don't think, though, if we legalized heroin, we would not legalize it in the same way that we are with, with cannabis. We're not going to be setting up heroin dispensaries. I mean, first of all, when you think about it, it's really a tiny group of people who use opioids in this country. It's, it's a small group compared to cannabis. I mean, millions, maybe even billions of people use cannabis, right, all over the world. That's not true, especially of heroin. It's a really a small group. So we need to look at a different model uh, for legalizing and regulating heroin. And they've already done it in other countries. So we don't have to reinvent the wheel here. So what would that look like, I guess? Like not that same dispensary. I want to go buy some weed. I'm going to go down the block. It's more of a, what would be like a bunch of small, maybe few shops scattered out throughout the state or something? No, I think it would be the way it's done now. And that is a physician. And, and actually it was done this way a long time ago in this country before the war on drugs really took, took root in this country. Physicians prescribe hydromorphone to the person and they go and they pick it up at the pharmacy. That would be the model. I think that would be the, the best way to do that. It, it is a medicine, right? Methadone is a medicine, hydromorphone, it's a medication. That is, I think, the way we would want to get that to people who are dependent and who uh, they're, I mean, not all, if you look at buprenorphine and heroin and methadone, people respond differently to those three drugs. It's similar to, I mean, there's lots of medications, right, for high blood pressure. People respond differently to each one. And so you have those three, available for people so that they can see which one helps them the most. But you need to do it, I, I think, with a healthcare provider who has pre prescription privileges and they're maintained on it through their healthcare provider. We're not opening up stores. Although I would be in favor of op opening opium dens. Opium dens, what's that like? Opium dens, you're smoking. It's a place where you would go and smoke opium. Oh, okay. Okay. Right? I mean, a bar is a place where people go and drink. A bar is essentially a place where people go and use drugs that are legalized, right? Yeah. And so there's a whole history of opium dens. There were in this country in San Francisco, again, before, on, before the war on drugs really took hold, and places like Iran, China, of course. And I would like to see something like that, opium dens, where people could go, again, you'd have a set of rules and regulations to be able to come in, ID checks, that sort of thing. But I, I would actually like to see opium dens open in the United States. Gotcha. Well, one thing I will say too, is this whole, uh, that whole approach you said, like legalizing all the drugs for the cartel, for the audience episode 17, one of my guests was in uh, Colombia for seven years. He wrote a book about the creation and expedition of cocaine. And you just see the way these cartels sort of, like not even like the way that the drugs impact America when they come over, but just like even in Colombia themselves, if they lose their market with every other country legalizing it, 
then you'll <laughs> see the oppression of these again cartels on these people go away because cocaine comes to the town these people make a boatload of money the farmers for the first year but then sort of the cartel catches on that there's now selling coke they oppress them they force them that brings the gang violence all this stuff so like Mm -hmm. it would also have a great impact on central america that i'd like to see too Mm -hmm. and so before we again before we move on to methadone so the Oregon approach, I mean, that's like a big, that's the first step America has taken. Is that you're in favor of that or you want them to do a little more? Well, I, I support the decriminalization in Oregon, but it doesn't go far enough. It doesn't go far enough. And as, as I, I've mentioned, it doesn't do anything to address the fact that we've got a poison drug supply that last year killed over 72,000 people. It doesn't change that. I mean, I want to go for the reform that can save the most lives and decriminalization cannot cannot do that. It can save people from some of the most draconian repercussions of of using drugs, right? Being put into the criminal legal system and then all of the negative uh, consequences of that. It's going to save some people from that, but it's not going to stop people who grow drugs from being arrested. It's not, as far as I understand the law, it's not going to do that. People who sell drugs, it's, it's very narrow. I support it, I, I wanna be on record, but I think there's a better reform and that's legalization and regulation. And my, my colleagues in Portugal, some of them have come to that conclusion, right? They've had decriminalization for 20 years. And they have a poison drug supply. They still have a war on drugs. It's not as bad as the one we have in the US, but they are talking about evolving that model to legalization and regulation of all drugs. Gotcha. All right, sounds good. So now we said it before, but your documentary is called Liquid Handcuffs, a documentary to free methadone. Right off the bat, why, um, why the title Liquid Handcuffs? What does that mean? Liquid handcuffs, we heard, we interviewed so many people and this is, this is what they say in the United States. They don't call it that in, in the other countries that, that we went to, but people over and over again were saying it's like liquid handcuffs. And it, it's so, it, it's such a vivid expression, right? Handcuffs controlling you and then this liquid. So most clinics, but not all, you drink the methadone. You don't get it in pill form. You I was going to ask it. about that too, because yeah, I saw the green, they squirt in the cup and then the people lining up just take a shot of it. Exactly. Right. And that, I've come to think of it that, the, that because they're giving it to people in a liquid form, that's actually one of the ways that people are oppressed and controlled because what ends up happening when people get take-homes, right? So a person could get three, four, five, six days of take-homes, even more. You get a bottle and it has the liquid in it and it's bulky and it's cumbersome and it's very different, right? Than one bottle of pills. You would take one pill every day but you have however many of your take-homes, it's liquid, it's divided up into each bottle. 
and it's a hassle. And people, especially, I recently interviewed somebody who is in, he's unhoused and he lives in a shelter. And he said, it's really hard to have five bottles in a, in a shelter, right? So why wouldn't they give him one bottle of pills, which is much easier to keep control of, right? So I've come to think of the form of liquid is a way to control people. And also think about somebody brought this to my attention. It's probably Aaron in the film. If you want to fly and you've got, say you get 14 day take homes, you've got 14 bottles with liquid in it and you're trying to get on a plane, right? Oh yeah, I can't do that. <laughs> you have to check your luggage. I mean, why aren't they giving them it, in the pill form, they also have wafers. So liquid handcuffs, it's a very provocative uh, way of thinking about methadone. And for the people who told us that, who said that, that phrase, they very much feel that power differential. They feel that they've got the liquid handcuffs on when they go into that clinic. Gotcha. What about Spitback? I saw that in your documentary. Right, Spitback. That is a product of not making methadone available, easily available to enough people. It is difficult to get onto methadone, number one. I, I want to believe that's changed because of COVID, but I, I'm not convinced that it has. So it's difficult to get into a methadone clinic. And so the other thing is many people, when they find out how the clinic operates, they're like, hell no, I'm not doing that. I'm not going there six days a week. I go to, I have to go to work. I have all these other things I have to do. So what people end up doing is they hold the methadone in their mouth and then they go outside and they'll spit it into something and then they'll sell it to a person who is trying to avoid opioid withdrawal. Becomes like a black market. Well, yeah, it's, it, it's, the, it's the, the illicit market, but it's important to note that in, some, in many ways, it's people who are on methadone helping people who cannot or will not go into the clinic system, they're helping them to avoid withdrawal. Gotcha. And yeah, you just mentioned it too, where uh, you have to go in six days a week uh, in the US if you wanna get on methadone, gotta go to the clinic, which, I mean, side note, we just had a storm here in Connecticut and there's no way it would be safe to get on the road. We got like a foot over here. But how does that compare to say, uh, some of the other countries you visited. So yeah, like what's the flaws with the six days a week model that it is? Well, I think you just said it, right? Imagine, I, I often, I have a thing that I've, I've said when, when we've done screenings and done talkbacks afterwards, I ask people in the audience to imagine what would your life be like if you had to go to a clinic six days a week or even five or even three days a week to get medication, how would that change your life? Would it make it better? Would it make it worse, right? Think about that. Many people take medication, right? I mean, 
many people, you, it could be a maintenance medication for hypertension, or maybe you needed some antibiotics for a couple of weeks. Think about what that would be like if you had to go to a clinic every day, stand outside, wait in line. When the door opens, go inside, wait in line, and go up to the plexiglass and be given your dose, told to lift your tongue up because they want to make sure you swallowed it, or maybe told to take your sunglasses off because they want to look at your eyes, and then told that you have to go to a mandated counseling session. Most people would not like that, right? They'd be pretty angry about that. So the attendance requirements are really a barrier to people going into treatment and even staying in, 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 in treatment. It is an absolute, it's just a monstrous, insane idea. I mean, you said we just had this snowstorm. One of the people we talked to in our documentary, he talked about Hurricane Sandy. All right, think about all, you know, think about what climate change is doing to our world, right? We're we'll getting these super storms, uh, you know, you had in New Orleans. Uh, and, and so think about how do you get to a clinic with all of these very intense weather events? You don't get to the clinic and you don't get your medication. And then maybe you can tough it out, but we know some people will go to the illicit market and then they are at risk of getting fentanyl and overdosing and dying. So that's what the this a, a crazy attendance requirement does to people. It controls them, right? Your life has to revolve around going to that clinic. And that and that is wrong. And in times like right now, we just had this major snowstorm in New York City, it's actually dangerous for people. I can see that. Plus, I mean, just everyday life, like say your work needs you to stay longer or a family member sick and the hospital, you need to go visit, but then you're distracted. Mm -hmm. But I could also see the other side saying these people who have a heroin addiction or dependency on opioids or are some people would say they're in a different class where say I need to go get Adderall or something. Some people will say that's a different category than people who are suffering from addiction who would then need this counseling or need these precautions? Well, I, I mean, he, here's the thing. I mean, we give millions of people prescriptions for oxycodone, percodone, percodan, you know, all classes of opioids, right? I mean, I, I had a surgery a couple of years ago and I got a prescription for an, an opioid for, a, a, it wasn't a, a total month supply. I didn't go to a clinic to get it. I went to Dwayne Reed and I picked it up, right? So why is methadone any different? And so what it really comes down to is trust. People who are on methadone are not trusted. And the clinic system is set up as, as a character in Liquid Handcuffs says, to control, contain, and confine people. And that's what the attendance requirement does. It controls, contains, and confines people. Gotcha. I kind of interrupted you before when you're saying what liquid handcuffs meant, but that's the definition of liquid handcuffs. That's why you called your documentary that? 
Yes, we called it liquid handcuffs because it sums up everything that is wrong with the methadone clinic system, not just in the United States, but in some of the other countries that we profile in the documentary. The exception is England, which has a pharmacy-based system, but in India, you have to go to a clinic, you have to go to this clinic six days a week. Eventually you can quote earn take-homes, but the US unfortunately has exported the clinic system to many countries around the world. Yeah, I remember uh, in the documentary, it's an interview with this woman over in England and she's just like all like exasperated or stunned by the six day a week USA model. Mm-hmm. But, so when making this documentary, I feel like it would have been easy to just stay in the US, look at our healthcare or look at our procedures and just create a documentary like that. So why did you go to these other countries? We wanted to do a compare and contrast. And in particular, Portugal was really important, even though Portugal has a clinic system and we we talk about that, and they can also be very punitive in that, in their clinic system. But what they have that a lot of countries don't have is mobile methadone. And that is such a brilliant idea. It's the idea that we're going to come to you. It's kind of like a visiting doctor, right? She's going to come to your house. You're not going to have to go to an emergency room, which is full of sick people who are making a lot of noise and freaking out. And so the van, we wanted to profile the van. And like I said, it's a brilliant idea. It's like, we're gonna come to you and give you your medication. You don't have to come to a clinic. So we wanted to profile that in Portugal. And then of course in England, they have a pharmacy based model, which is infinitely better than a clinic system. However, and we talk about this in the documentary, and in some ways it's a little bit liquid handcuffs light. You have to go to the pharmacy initially five or six days a week. And the pharmacist watches you take the methadone. Sometimes they have a private room where they can do it. In other pharmacies, they don't. So it's a better reform because you're going to a pharmacy, which is not a stigmatizing place to go, right? Everybody goes to the pharmacy. They're typically community hubs, but there's still this level of surveillance, right? Where you have to take it in front of the pharmacist. You've got to go five or six days a week. Eventually you can cut back. So there's still some punitive elements in Portugal and in England, but they're a major advance than what we have in the United States in the the clinic system. So they don't trust you at first. And once you take it long enough, then they'll give you more that you can take home, like you mentioned. But where's the fear coming from? Like, what, uh, what are they afraid of people doing with methadone? Well, when, when you realize that the Drug Enforcement Administration, the DEA, is involved in the provision of methadone. So the DEA is the preeminent, uh, they're waging the war on drugs. And drug use is criminalized and the DEA is committed to keeping it that way. So when you have a group of people who are criminalized in the way that people who use heroin are, then you can create a system where you have all of these rules and regulations to control people. I mean, it's really, 
outrageous that the drug and drug enforcement administration has anything to do with methadone they're drug warriors they enforce drug laws why are they involved in the provision of methadone they're not in portugal they're not in england they're not in india but they are in the united states so that speaks volumes about why the clinic system people are not trusted people still feel very much criminalized they are surveilled one of the major ways they do it and this is federal state and local is through urinalysis so people are continually continually have to give urine to prove they're not using drugs so in a way kind of the war on drugs isn't over it's kind of still going on i think that the methadone clinic system is a is a creation of the drug warriors and they like this system that controls people in perpetuity. As long as you take methadone, you will never be able to leave the clinic system. They have control over you. Even if you get 28 days, there are some programs in different parts of the country where people can get a 28 day supply, which is essentially once a month, right? But even that can be taken away from you. So the D, the drug warriors are all about control. And that is one of the things that we have to do. We have to get the DEA out of the clinic system. They have no business. They're cops, right? They're drug, what, what are they doing? I mean, methadone is a medicine. We need healthcare providers and people who are on methadone to be part of the system of how we're looking at methadone prescription. You mentioned time a second ago. I saw in the documentary, one person was on it for 20 years even, and that's a bit of time. So why are some people on methadone for so long? And is that a negative in itself? No, it's, it's not a negative. There are medications that people need. They will need for, they'll be on forever, right? I, I don't know if you know anybody, but I know several people who they're going to need insulin until the day they die right? And it's one of the biggest myths about methadone. And one of the ways people on methadone are highly stigmatized, you hear this a lot, why are they on it for so long? We don't say that about other other medications, do we? It's like, you stay on it as long as it's helping you. And for some people, they'll need to be on it for their entire life. And it makes their life better, right? It makes them able to go to work. They have a family, take care of their family, enjoy life. And so we don't look at how long people are on methadone. That's not, that's not important. Stay on it for as long as you need, as long as it's helping you. Now, some people do want to taper down. And if they can do that, more power to them. But some people will need methadone for their entire life. There's nothing wrong with that. If you take methadone, are there any side effects? Like maybe uh, it could cause depression or are there any side effects that people are cautious about? Well, one of the major side effects is actually constipation, right? So that's not too bad. So you might have to deal with that. But of course, you can overdose on methadone and die. And people have, to be sure, people have. But the vast majority use the medication safely. Are those accidental or is there like a 
high that comes with methadone that a few people tried to achieve? People don't get high on, on methadone. But the other thing that we know about overdose deaths in the United States, it's never just one drug. It's almost always a combination. So there will be some fentanyl on board. There'll be benzodiazepines. There might be alcohol. There might be meth. It's very unusual for a person to overdose and die. And they just have, they've just used one drug. You said the stat before, 72,000 people in I think 2018 died of opioids, alcohol again. I'm sure that's extremely high and same with other drugs. Mm -hmm. Like this is just opioids in itself, 72,000, which is nuts. But so I guess what about budgetary restraints? Just like the fans with Portugal, I feel like that would cost money on the government, which is what people would fear. So what about in America? Like if they wanted to, if you take the England approach, the pharmacy, then it's the same cost. But is there any budgetary restraints that I'm not thinking about? I don't, I don't think so. I mean, methadone clinics, if you com- compare the clinic system to a pharmacy system, the methadone clinic system is much more expensive than having people just go and pick it up in a pharmacy. Methadone, I want people to know this, is very cheap. It's not on patent. It's not a patented medication like buprenorphine. And it's very inexpensive. And it actually would save people a lot of money if their healthcare provider could simply prescribe them a month's worth of methadone and they could go pick it up in a pharmacy. And here's where I just have to mention, here is a real serious, maybe contradiction doesn't quite capture what it is, but here it is. If your, your doc, any, any, pers- any healthcare provider who has prescription privileges, If you have pain, typically chronic pain, they can prescribe methadone for you and you can go pick it up in a pharmacy. You cannot provide a person who has an addiction with methadone and go pick it up in a pharmacy. You can only get it in the clinic system. Gotcha. Doesn't make sense. You can get it for pain and go to the pharmacy and pick it up. But if you have an opioid dependence you have to go to a clinic that's a little backwards to put it lightly (laughs) all right that's the methadone technical side what about you said it yourself earlier there's a lot of names throughout the film what was it like meeting these people or what were some of the stories that you found meeting these people it was such a privilege to meet people from all over the world with the exception of russia where where methadone is illegal it is available in the illicit market, we weren't able to meet folks there on methadone, but in other countries- any clinics whatsoever, nothing. No, methadone is, it's illegal. They don't believe in methadone in Russia. And so to just hear people's stories, I mean, here's here's the the time where I wanna say something incredibly positive about methadone. And that is the stories that people tell us of just, getting on methadone and getting their life back together. Methadone becomes a way to exit the street life, to reconnect with people that you weren't able to while you were out ripping and running, trying to to get heroin. And just just those amazing stories of, I'm with my kids again. 
I, my, my parents invite me over for dinner now. Just hearing those stories were just amazing. I believe it. Also, between the cuts of the film, there were a lot of shots where I'd see people on the side of the street even just like shooting heroin throughout your documentary. Was that a common occurrence where it's just out in the public with some of these areas? <clears throat> well, I think you're talking about, well, there are two places where we saw that when we were in Delhi, the peer educators, they took us to, it's a fairly remote uh, part of, of this neighborhood. Uh, not surprisingly, if you see the documentary, Delhi, people live on top of one another. It's a very dense, very dense city. And you couldn't, you have to find a place that is away from the, the housing and that there's a place, it's, I don't know what you would call it, a little forest or something, but there's also cows around there. And that's where people would go to in, in, inject. In Kabul, in Afghanistan, it's completely different. It was really, oh, it was really hard again. There's a group of peer educators and they took me to the Kabul River. And it, as you can see in the documentary, it's an open air drug scene. So people are smoking drugs, they're injecting drugs openly. And it's a tragedy really. And it's, I mean, I, I say this all the time, prevent, preventable, but not prevented. I mean, what the answer to that is because people don't wanna see that, right? I, I, I accept that people don't want to see people injecting drugs out in public. That's not a good thing. We don't, we don't want that. What we need are overdose pre prevention sites, safe injection sites. And then that problem goes away. They don't have that in Kabul. We don't have that here in the United States. So that's why those scenes can thrive because people don't have, they don't have other options. Gotcha. And yeah, no other options or even the opposite war on drugs where you're aggressive towards drugs. We see that doesn't do anything. So I don't know, why not try the what you said, 50% death rate, uh, the death rate is lowered by 50% with methadone. Try something like that out, mm -hmm. try something else out. A number of things you mentioned. At the end of your documentary, the credits rolled and you said you want a prescription parody, no supervised consumption, no uh, mandatory urinalysis, mm -hmm. no mandatory counseling, and abolish methadone clinics. Yeah. So the way there, there's often several solutions to a problem, but the best one, in my opinion, is to move to a, a system where you have prescription parity, that methadone is treated like every other drug in the pharmacopoeia. And you just go to the pharmacy and you pick it up and take it home like you would any other medication. And one of the, one of the major reasons I think that this is the way we have to go is that it, it eliminates that power differential that Aaron talked about in the documentary. What the clinic system does, it does a lot of terrible things to people. But one of the ones that I find the most egregious is this massive power differential between the person on methadone and the staff. And that is a group of people who can often be very hostile to people on methadone. And that's because people on, who, who are on methadone 
are really criminalized and the stigma and the stereotypes, there's a group of people that control access to your medication that you need like oxygen or food. And if you don't comply with the clinic regulations and rules, you can and will be cut off of your medication. It's called an, an administrative detox. And it means if you don't pay your copay, they can quote administratively detox you. So they will take you down to zero if you can't pay. If something happens in the clinic, if you have a fight with somebody or if something happens, they can just kick you out of the clinic. If you're using on top of your methadone and you have a UA that is positive for other drugs, including cannabis, they can sanction you by taking away your take-homes. This incredible power differential has got to end. It is inhumane that you have control over somebody's medication. And again, I want people who listen to this to put yourself in the shoes of a person on methadone and you can't get your medicine at the farm. You have to go into this, this building and deal with all of this and you might not get your medication, right? So that's one of the main reasons is that we should not have institutions that, again, as several people in the documentary say, feel like prison. They feel like prison. Why would we want a, 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 a system that is replicating what happens in prisons? That's wrong. And we need to close methadone clinics and move to a pharmacy-based system. But there's opposition to that. Yeah, even prisons in themselves, they're uh, punishment versus reform. And luckily, that's a whole different topic, the whole prison reform. But even that in itself needs to be changed. So as a whole other topic that fits together. Some of these punishments are like you mentioned. I heard one was you could be towards the end of taking methadone, but then they test you positive of cannabis or something in your system. And then you have to start all the way back to the beginning of passing, I want to say 12 consecutive negative tests. <clears throat> mm -hmm. Yeah, like it varies from, from clinic to clinic. I know that some clinics now with cannabis, they really don't care. They're not, they're not going to punish you if there's cannabis in your urine, but there are other clinics that, that do uh, punish you. The other thing that I wanna mention is the way that people are punished and controlled is clinics have a window where they will give you the medication. So it could be from seven to 10, and then it closes for a couple hours and then it opens up again. Well, if you're late, you don't get your medication. How punitive is that? How outrageous is that, right? It's just another argument for a pharmacy-based system. And I had, had a student one year, I teach a, a class, uh, I've taught several classes, the war on drugs and uh, counseling with people who use substances. And my student told me this story. She worked in a methadone clinic and the door closed and somebody, a patient was on the other side, banging on the door, please let me in. Please, please, begging, I need my medication. Think about that. Think about hu how humiliating and degrading that is to do that. So this person smashed the glass 
smash the glass to try to get in. I mean, the inhumanity of, of that. And so then the other, the other thing you have to ask is, what about the staff person on the other side of the door that doesn't open the door and say, please come in, we are going to give you your medication. What happens to the people who work in this very coercive and punishing environment? They lose their empathy. A lot of them lose their empathy. I don't wanna say there aren't some amazing people who work in methadone because I know they do. But the longer you work, in an environment like that, where you have to punish people, you can't let them in. If there's drugs in their urine, you have to have a talk with them about it, right? What happens? So I go back to that a lot, that would I would open that door. I would open that door and say, come in and get your medication. But that happens all the time in methadone clinics. People are late, right? You're driving, you get a flat tire. There's a snowstorm, there's road construction. I live in New York City, as, as we show in the documentary, the trains don't work all the time. You're sitting in a station for 20 minutes. Well, guess what? The methadone clinic closed. You don't get your medication. We cannot have that. We cannot accept that anymore. And like you said, you'd open the door, but not everyone would do that. Some people have less exactly. empathy, exactly. What happens if these people miss like say the door closed, that person's not able to get their methadone. What happens? Withdrawals kick in and they struggle for the next day or what are the consequences? I mean, there's a whole number of things that could happen. I mean, people could go into withdrawal. Some people might be able to make it through to, to the next day. We know that some people, it, they use it as a, as a reason to then go and use heroin, right? It's the perfect reason. It's like, I can't get my methadone. I need something I'm going to go and use. I mean, the clinic system, when they do that, they're setting people up to relapse. It's crazy. I also like the idea of just mail order, right? A lot of people get their medications through the mail. Really? And then you don't even have to go to a pharmacy, especially for some of our older folks who are on, me on methadone. I'm I'm in post-production right now for a short documentary on methadone and COVID-19. So COVID-19 revealed so much, right? About the things that are wrong in our country. And it really, it exposed how the methadone clinic system doesn't work for so many people. And fortunately the DEA, I'm gonna give them credit for this, very soon after the pandemic hit, they changed the regulations around take-homes. That's never happened uh, before. And they said to clinics across the country, you can give people 14 or 28 days. We can't have a situation where hundreds of people six days a week are lining up, right? Outside of a clinic, lining up inside. Most uh, methadone clinics are not big spaces. So even when people are inside there, you can't do the physical distancing. And uh, that was great. And now we want those regulations to remain in place. We don't want them to retract the 14 and 28 day take-homes. We don't know what's going to happen, but COVID kind of shone a light which is what our documentary is actually trying to do about what really happens inside. And 
what what we found this is I can't I can't say this is a rigorous study, but through the course of making this short documentary about methadone and COVID nineteen, we interviewed people here in New York. We went to Appalachia. We went to North Carolina. We went to Knoxville, Tennessee, and then we went to Boston. And we just asked people, "Are you getting the 14, 28 day take homes?" And most people were not. Some of them were able to scale back from six to, to three days, which is better, right? But what we found, and again, this isn't uh, an authoritative uh, study, that the majority of people, it, it appears, did not move to 14 or, or 28 days take-homes. It was their choice not to, or they just weren't allowed, they weren't given them? The clinics were not offering people 14 or 28 day take-homes. There, there, there were some clinics that I know one in the Bronx is an exception at Montefiore. They moved a lot of people who were coming six days a week to the 14 and the 28 day. And I'm sure there's other others around the country, but it just seemed from the people that we interviewed that it was not widespread. And one of the reasons was because we know the more days you come to the clinic, the more days the clinic can bill for those services. So the financial incentive for clinics to keep you coming four, five, six days a week. If you move to 14 or 28, they can't bill for those days. So there's a financial incentive here. I don't quite understand how it works entirely something I, I wanna look into, but there's definitely a financial piece here. And again, in the documentary, a couple of people said that. They want the money. They want you to come every day. They wanna bill for these services. If we move to a pharmacy pickup system, well, that, that would completely eliminate them. But wow. you see the point I'm making. Yeah, 100%, it makes no sense. You're struggling and stuff. So here, let's bill you every time you go. I know. Um... I forgot which country this is, but I saw a thousand dollars a month to be on a program. And every time you see the doctor is three hundred dollars. I forget which country that was, maybe London. Nah. But yeah, that just makes absolutely no sense. I'm trying to see too. You said the mailing the methadone to the person's house. Mm-hmm. And in my head, the first reaction is mailing a drug to someone's house. That seems a little excessive, but then the other side is the black market that is this drug is just people who can't get the drug themselves. So mm-hmm. they need to buy it off someone so they can take it themselves. So I'm trying to see the other side, play devil's advocate. Sure. On a topic like this is kind of hard to <laughs> not really <Yeah>. seeing it. <laughs> right. I mean, unfortunately, because of the war on drugs, the, the fear, this is what the war on drugs does. It whips up fear around drugs. To, to the point where it's just irrational. I mean, people on methadone, they just wanna feel okay. You know, they don't wanna overdose and die. They don't wanna give it away. These are all myths. And again, the war on drugs just exaggerates the power of drugs. And it just instills so much fear in people. And that doesn't help the, it, it doesn't help the conversation when people believe 
that drugs have these incredible powers over us. I mean, the majority of people, um, there's essentially hardly any diversion of methadone. That's something the Drug Enforcement Administration talks about a lot. We have to make sure methadone doesn't get diverted. Most methadone doesn't get diverted. As I said earlier, it, when it does get diverted, it gets diverted to another person who is opioid dependent, right? It's not me, you know, I'm not, I'm not out there trying to get diverted. It, it's people who, who are gonna use it so they, they don't go in, into withdrawal. It's not the high school kids like, hey, I just got a hookup for, oh, what you get? A 30 milligrams of methadone. Oh yeah, man. <laughs> You're not gonna Exactly, it, does, it doesn't have that cachet on the street. Uh, for, for people, it just, it just doesn't have that. The other thing I wanted to say about why we need to abolish methadone clinics is because methadone clinics, they embody stigma and stigma is just another word for prejudice. So what often happens with methadone clinics is neighborhoods don't want them. It's called NIMBY, not in my backyard. And because of the opioid overdose crisis across the country, they've tried to open up methadone clinics. And in almost every community, they come out to stop the methadone clinic. We don't want those people coming into our neighborhood. They are criminals, they steal, they do all kinds of terrible things. Now, of course, that is not true, uh, but communities mobilize to keep methadone clinics out. It happened a couple years ago, right here in my neighborhood in Harlem, the community organized and they were successful in keeping it out. And so the way that you get rid of NIMBYism is again, you move to a pharmacy system and then you don't even have that problem of community saying, not, in, not, not here, we don't want those people. People are going to the pharmacy, there's no NIMBYism right, when it, when it comes to your local CVS. So that, that's a huge issue across the country when we've tried to scale up methadone clinics to respond to the opioid-related overdose crisis. It's very, very difficult to open one and they're almost always opposed. And there's a simple solution, pharmacy-based pickup. Sounds good. I feel like most people should be able to get behind that. To wrap up the podcast, is there any final message or final thing you want to tell the audience? We have to free methadone. We have a clinic system that's been in existence for almost 50 years that oppresses people, that doesn't allow them to be free, that stigmatizes them. And what COVID-19 has done is it's, it's put a spotlight on this system and it's given those of us who want major reform hope that we can actually transform our methadone clinic system and that means it's it's abolition and transitioning to a system where people have their humanity they have their dignity uh, we get rid of this power dynamic that keeps people down and that we will look back once we have this system in place and say, why 
why did it take so long? And, and why was this clinic system ever developed and implemented? Why, why did we have a system that harmed so many people that took a medication that is the essence of harm reduction and put it in a clinic system that produces harm? Gotcha. Sounds good. Right. Okay. Yeah. For uh, if anyone on the other side wants to send me an email saying uh, why to go against methadone, send an email, but stamp of approval, make a methadone in the pharmacy, I say. So yeah, uh, Helen Redmond, thanks for coming out to the show. Okay, thanks for having me. And for the audience, uh, FM 91.7, WHUS stores at the top of the hour. And yeah, as always, deuces. This has been The Way Podcast. If you want to know more about The Way Podcast, go to podcasttheway.com.